Well, it's certainly wonderful to be here with you this morning, this afternoon, and just to take an opportunity to share with you about the book of Revelation. Well, when someone says that you've been in the ministry 47 years and I look out at the congregation, I feel like uh, I shouldn't be here. I feel like a fossil someplace. <laughs> okay. Well, it's certainly good uh, to be here. And I'm, what we're going to do, we're going to go through the book of Revelation and uh, over the next four weeks, and we're going to first set a foundation of what the book's about and we're going to look at some important parts there. And then we're going to go through and look at it and what the church is, the tribulation, and of course the best part, when we get to heaven. And really, I mean, many times we just read the last two chapters and forget the rest. Uh, so we're going to do that. And I trust you have a real, that God speaks to you and encourages you on, on this study. It's been so good to hear that in the last probably two or three years there's been a, a, a resurgence of people who want to know more about the book of Revelation. So if you would turn with me to your, the Bible, your Bible, that's a good place to start, isn't it? And Revelation chapter 1, and I want to read a couple of verses from there. Okay. You can put the PowerPoint up if you want with the scripture. Okay, I want to read to you from verses... Must be an excitable preacher, Jonathan, because this pulpit's wrapping all over the place. <laughs> okay, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, partway through verse 5. And I've lost it. Okay, it says here, To him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and the Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then verse 7, 8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then picking up at uh, verse 10. I've lost where I am. Okay. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And... Uh, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are at Asia. And then we'll go to verse 12. Then I turned to see a voice that spoke with me. Having, I, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and a girdle about his chest and with a gold band. And then down to verse 17, he says... And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. And the verse 20 here says, In the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my hand are the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Let's just pray and ask God to open this particular section to us in a very special way. Father, we just come in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for this place, this church of Revive. We thank you, Lord, for each one of these people here. And I pray, in God, that you would hide your servant, that your servant would, would not be seen, that your spirit be in this place, that only that Jesus would be seen, and that we would catch a glimpse of the, of the experience which John the Apostle had on that day, that it would sink deep into our spirits, and, Lord, you would make us alive with your presence. Lord, we just give you praise and glory for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, I've hit the wrong pin number. Oh, I've got it, okay. Oops, now it's gone away. Great technology. I'm still learning it. You people grew up with it, uh, but we invented it. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the encounter with Jesus Christ in this chapter here. You know, the book of Revelation is all about a dynamic encounter with Christ. The first chapter lays the foundation of that encounter as well as assuring us of Christ's sovereign control over everything and his individual care for the believer. Now, there's a particular story that took place in 1866, and it's the discovery of the world's greatest diamond mines in America. And it came to light by people that were totally unaware. The story goes like this. A man called Van Niekerk was out walking with some friends, and as he walked along in South Africa, he looked down and he saw some stones there, and he said to his friends, they look like diamonds. They turned around and said to him, don't be foolish, Diamonds just lying in the dust, don't be ridiculous. But he wasn't determined. He picked up some of those stones and he sent them to Holland to a famous geologist. Well, the geologist was skeptical at first, but being a true scientist, he studied the diamonds and looked at them and he found that they were worth between 500 pounds and $1,000 in the 1870s. A vast amount of money at that time. Van Niekerk and his friend Dorali went back to South Africa where they found their diamonds and made an absolute fortune. The diamonds were there all the time, but people passed over them because they didn't know the truth about them. You know, when studying the book of Revelation, it's so easy to pass over the opening verses. Yet, if we just take a moment in time to stop and to consider what is before us, we will discover some of God's precious diamonds that not only enrich our lives, but also will enrich our understanding of the book of Revelation. You know, as far back as 675 AD, church buildings had stained glass windows fitted into their window frames. And what is remarkable about what these people wanted to do was not only decorations, but they used them to tell the stories of the Bible. And I want you to imagine as we're going through this passage, that we're working, walking through a great cathedral. And as we go along, we see beautiful stained glass windows on the right and the left-hand side. Each one of these windows portrays something about Jesus Christ. I mean, I hope I get this right. Uh, oh, you're going to do it at the back? Okay, next PowerPoint. Okay, we'll put this down. No problem. Okay. As we look into this passage, one of the first things we encounter is, that G is what Christ has done for us. And this is so beautifully captured in verses 5 and 6. John tells us that Jesus has loved us. And these words in the Greek language capture the great compassion that Christ has for each one of us. When you're reading it through, it almost seems like that John stops as he writes as if to let the, the magnitude of it begin to fill his being, as if he wants the readers to stop for a moment and just savor the moment of the great love of Christ in us. The words in the Greek are actually written in the, what we call the present tense and describe the continuous and permanent action of Christ giving his love for us. Then he continues to reveal how this love that was so costly, how it was expressed to us. He says that Jesus washed us 
from our sins in his own blood. The result of such love was that we were washed from our sins. And the word washed is better translated as the word loosed. And the idea behind the word is that of breaking the bonds of a slave and setting the free. You see, the love of Christ has set the believer free from the powers of the bondage of sin. Now, this truth is captured in a beautiful promise given to the church at Smyrna. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, it says these words. He says, to those who overcome, they will receive a white stone. And on that stone is a name that only they know, and it's their new name. Now we look at that and we think, that is so wonderful. But what does it mean? Well, it refers to the occult practice. And people in the occult practice believe that if they know your name, they can put a curse on you and they can destroy your life. Having a white stone given to the believer with a name on it that only we know and only God knows shows that the power of Satan has been broken in our lives. And we have become victorious in Jesus Christ. Now John tells us that this took place because Jesus washed us in his blood. See, we achieve victory over Satan not by our own efforts, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Revelations chapter 12, verse 11, we have a picture in heaven. It's a beautiful picture, and it's a picture of the saints of God singing, and they begin to sing that they've overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. You know, this verse has been the inspiration of many and many sermons and two wonderful hymns. And those hymns are, there is nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ and there is power in the blood of Jesus. And when sung with gusto can lift the floor of any auditorium. When I was a little boy, we, I grew up in a Baptist church and in a congregation of about 500, we certainly didn't have dark lights. We had none of this kind of music, smoke and all the kind of things which you had. We had an organ that some days I thought was demon-possessed, but anyway. <laughs> and we had a choir. But you know, you never got excited. You never clapped your hands or anything like that. We had a guy who was a Pentecostal in the midst of it. He would call out, praise God. They never threw him out because he paid for all the church. But <laughs> he was a very rich man. But if you got excited, you tapped your toes inside your shoes. You know, you just didn't let the deacon see that. <laughs> but you know, when they began to sing this song, 500 Voices, the floorboards of this whole church would almost seem to lift right up above because of what Jesus Christ had done. Praise God for the one-time sacrifice of the Lamb of God that justifies us for all eternity. Satan's accusations towards the believer are essentially nullified by the forgiveness of sin and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now the removal of our sins through Christ's love and sacrifice has resulted in the believer's coronation and consecration. We have become kings and priests of God, our Heavenly Father. In verse 6, it tells us that Christ has made us kings and priests. Now, the word made there is a very interesting word. You could picture it like this. It's a word referring to jabbing someone in the chest. You can imagine a trainer coming up to his champion boxer who he's trained and he jams him in the chest and says, Listen here, young man. If it wasn't for me, you would be nothing. I have made you. This is the context that's coming through. If it wasn't for Christ, we would be nothing. He has made us 
He has redeemed us. Now, just as the ceremony of washing your pain of the Old Testament priests and kings for their duty, so too Christ's removal of our sins and the washing of his blood has prepared us for service by carrying out the great commission of taking the gospel into all the world. You know, with hearts inflamed with love and gratitude of thanksgiving, the believer can lift their voice and say with the Apostle John, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever for what Jesus Christ has done. Come to the next PowerPoint, please. The next thing we encounter is Christ's sovereign control. Jesus says these words. He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now the phrase I am is the same description that God gave of himself when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The phrase I am in the Hebrew language carries both the, the present and the future tense. And in the context, it means something like this. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end and all that lies between. The phrase I am shows us something else about the equality of Christ with God. The words show us Christ's omnipresence. John recorded this incident because he wants us to clearly understand and to know that Jesus Christ is not merely up there, out there somewhere. He is not the man upstairs, as some people flippantly put it, but he's here wherever here might be. You know, there's a story told of an atheist who printed out in large text these words that you see up there. God is nowhere. His little daughter looked up to it and spelled it out this way. God is now here. See, there is no spot in history or time where a past, present or future where Jesus cannot and does not say, I am here. You know, there's a rather touching and stirring story recorded in Scottish history. And it concerns the Highland clan of the House of McGregor, uh, who, the House of McGregor, and who fell, and the chieftain of this uh, battle fell wounded at the Battle of Proserpine. And seeing their chieftain fall in this battle, the clan began to waver and to give the other clan the victory. The old chieftain, seeing the effects of this upon his young men, leaned himself up on his elbows and blood gushing from his side. He said these words, I am not dead, my children. I am looking to see that you do your duty. And the sound of his voice aroused them and they realized that he was watching over them, stirred their courage and they turned the tide of the dreadful battle and won it for the McGregor clan. You know, today we all, we the church, stand on a battlefield. We too have a great chieftain, Jesus Christ, who was wounded for our sins. But there is a great difference. He does not support himself upon his elbow, bleeding from wounds. No, he's risen from the dead. He's seated victorious at the right hand of the Father with all principalities and all powers under his control. And from this position, he says to us, I am not dead, my children. I'm looking to see that you do your duty. I am with you always until the end of the world. Whatever situation we pass through, his eyes are fixed upon us. His presence revives us, energizes, and stimulates us. 
Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, 28, verse 20, I am with you always. And in the Greek language, we see it meant literally that he was always there for us. It means that he is not absent to anyone in any one situation. In the Greek language, it means like this. The word I am is a very intense way of referring to oneself. And it's compared with saying like this, I myself and only I am with you. Not only do we have at uncertain times the support of human companionship from the church, but we have the companionship of the Son of God. The word always in the Greek language uh, expresses the thought of the whole of every day. Just not the days which you see in the future, but each and every day of our lives. Whatever the duration of the church's mission upon the earth, our primary joy and strength will be that the Lord's presence with us. Come to the next PowerPoint, please. You know, there is no spot in history, time, where Christ cannot be found and is captured in the description of himself. He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And the Alpha and Omega, they are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, which has 24 letters, while there are 26 in the English alphabet. Now, these individual letters that you and I struggle so hard as children to get them right, to be able to clearly write them in a straight line. I want you to notice something about these letters, that they can be arranged in almost any combination there is to contain all the knowledge that we know today and all the knowledge that will be in the future. And also these letters can be arranged in a wonderful way to express our deepest emotion. When Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, what are you saying? He says, I know all the knowledge there is and all the knowledge that will be. But more importantly, he says, I know the quietest cries of your hearts. I know the deepest emotions deep within your being. Come to the next PowerPoint, please. You know, Jesus defined himself as the Alpha. And the word Alpha expresses the highest level in a group, the best in the group, the first in order, and it carries the thought of dominance and powers. We get our thought from Alpha male from and Alpha female from. In other words, it speaks of someone that has preeminence in all things, surpassing all things in superiority. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. He says that Christ has preeminence in all things. And the word preeminence in the Greek language means to be first in rank or influence. It comes from the Greek word it means foremost importance and in time. There's an old hymn we used to sing and you may remember it. And the hymn goes, All Hail the Power of the Name of Jesus. It's a very popular hymn that's sung amongst Christian denominations. The hymn is actually called the National Anthem of Christendom. Because the hymn so beautifully emphasizes and captures the preeminence of Christ. The lyrics were written by a missionary in India by the name of Ibrahim in 1779. It's been translated almost in every language where Christianity is found. The hymn goes, Or hail the power of the name of Jesus, uh, let angels prostrate fall. The second, the last stanza goes, uh, Let every tribe and of every tongue before him fall. Now, one of the most dramatic 
incidence of this hymn being used was found in the experience of a missionary by the name of Reverend E. P. Scott in India. His friends urged him not to go to a particular area that he felt to evangelize. He felt in his heart that he should go there. Full of faith and courage and trust in God, he moved towards that area. As he got to their borderlines, he was suddenly surrounded by people speaking in a language that he didn't understand, threatening him with spears and, and swords, and he just didn't know what to do. He opened up a violin case, picked it up, the violin, closed his eyes, and began to play and to sing that wonderful hymn, All Hail the Power of the Name of Jesus. When he finished, he expected that immediately he would be killed. Now, if I'd have sang it, they would have done it to put me out of my misery. But what he found was their spears were dropped. And they took him with curiosity into their camp. And then with great excitement, they received Jesus Christ as their Savior. See, in this story, we see the preeminence of Christ. What Paul is talking about when he said that in all things, Jesus Christ has preeminence. Every angelic being, every tongue, and every tribe must fall before him. There is none that can stand before him. He, Jesus Christ, is foremost in time, in place, in order, and importance. He is first in rank, he is first in influence, and he's first of all our great Alpha. Now Jesus also says that he is the Omega. Now there's a world-famous watch today that bears the name Omega. And if you've got one, you're quite wealthy. Right. The company was established in 1892 and took the name Omega because in the Greek language it means completeness or ultimate limit in perfection. Now this company strives not only for perfection but to be the first in timekeeping innovation. It developed the first minute repeater watch. Omega developed the first self-winding watch in 1952 and because of its perfection, Omega has been the official timekeeping device of the Olympic Games since 1932. In fact, it was the choice of NASA and was the first watch worn on the moon in 1969. And it's been worn by such famous people as J.F. Kennedy, Prince William, George Clooney and Buzz Aldrin. Now, although that Omega likes to claim the title of completeness, the company knows full well in this time-conscious world there will always be another mountain of innovation to climb and to conquer. True perfection, true completeness can only be found in Jesus Christ. Amen. He is our true Omega. Yes. The famous and not so famous wear the Omega watch as a status symbol of social standing or professional standing. But only Christ can truly wear the name Omega. He is the only one with true social standing. He is first born from the dead. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. He is the ultimate limit in perfection. He is our perfect sacrifice. He is the only one who cleanses us from all our sins. He is the Omega. Come to the next PowerPoint, please. John goes on to describe the unchanging protection of Christ over us and the church. He tells us that Jesus describes himself by these words. He said, who is and who was and who is to come. And what's interesting, it's the same title that God speaks of himself in verse 4. 
Now, the title shows something very important. It shows that Christ is equal to God and that like God, he is eternal and that he is unchanging. He, as an equal member in the Godhead, he's both eternal in the past and in the future. Some of you may be into art and know a fellow called Pablo Picasso. He was a Spanish Cuban artist who sketched and painted and sculpted his way into prominence in the early part of the 20th century. Now, on very rare occasions, he did what was called living portraits. On one such occasion, he painted a lady called Gertrude Stein, one of America's foremost authors in a gone-by era. In 1905, uh, oh, sorry, of the winter of 1905 and 1906, Gertrude Stein sat before the artist to paint. Ninety times, 9-0, she sat before Picasso to paint. And every time he got frustrated. On the 90th time, he threw down his brushes and paintbrushes. Every time I look at you, I can't see you. So he packed up his brushes and went back to Spain. And he continued to work on it. And in, sp and in spring, it was nearly finished. And when autumn came, it was finished. He brought an audience to see this painting. As he lifted off the cover, people looked at it, stunned with what had taken place. You see, Gertrude Stein, when the master painted her, was a young woman. But look at the portrait. Yet the face staring out from the canvas was a woman wrinkled and weather-beaten with age, wearing a thoughtful and earnest expression. Silence fell over the audience. Eventually, one lone voice courageously said to Picasso, she doesn't look like her portrait, to which Picasso replied simply, she will one day. <laughs> and as time went on, Gertrude Stein became the image of that portrait. You know, the portrait painted in the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with a glorified figure, blazing countenance, clothed in white, eyes like flames of fire, feet burning like brass. Among two angels and hosts in every tribe sing his praise and before all creation bow. It's not a portrait of what Christ will look like in the future. Unlike Picasso's portrait of Gertrude Stein, who showed what she would look like in the future, the portrait of Jesus Christ is unchanging Amen. because he's an equal member of the Godhead. He is eternal. He does not age and become wrinkled and weather-beaten. The portrait we see in the book of Revelation is what Christ has always looked like, what he looks like now and what he will look like in the future. The writer of Hebrews says these words, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was, and he is, and he will continue to be for all eternity, our great Alpha and our great Omega. Praise his name. Now, continuing with the proclamation of his equal standing with God, Jesus calls himself the word Almighty. And in the Greek language, it's the word Pantorator. And it means one who is all-powerful. And in the book of Revelation, this title, Almighty, is written nine times. Once about Jesus and eight times about God. The title speaks of the equality of God with Jesus Christ. The title speaks of Christ and God's unreserved power, exercising absolute dominion. Now, Paul tells us in Colossians, 
that Christ has created all things in heaven and earth, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities, but all things exist by him. Now the image of Christ as the great Pantac Rector was of great comfort and strength to the early church because they lived in very ominous and dangerous times. And around about 64 AD, in order to crush it, Rome unleashed a terrible persecution against the church. It lasted for more than 250 years. No one could withstand the invincible power of Rome. How could the church survive such might? John provides the answer. It will survive because of Jesus Christ. The picture of Christ that John paints in the book of Revelation of one who is all-powerful, risen from the dead, ascending on high, sitting on the throne of glory, able and willing to save his people against all odds. The promise contained here, it was not only for the early church, but for the church of all ages. No persecution, no demonic force can destroy the church. It will survive because of Christ. Paul tells us in Romans that we are more than conquerors. This explains why this particular icon or picture of Christ, the great Pantactor, was the first image of Christ developed by the early church and still remains the central icon of the Eastern Orthodox Church today. It is still one of the most widely used religious images in Orthodox Christianity. Robin and I, about a year ago, went into a Greek fish and chip shop to buy fish and chips, as you expected, and there, sitting on the counter, was Jesus Christ, the great Pantactor. You see, Jesus Christ reigns supreme. His power is unchallenged. He will fulfill his promise and bring victory to believers. Praise his name. What a glorious picture of hope is presented in these verses. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, an equal member of the Godhead, is present in every situation of our lives. He cares for us. He knows our deepest emotions and feelings. He has sovereign control over all things. No power of Satan can destroy us. This is the message of assurance that comes through the book of Revelation over and over again. In the closing verses of the chapter, we encounter a dynamic image of Christ's care for the church and the individual believer. Now John tells us that on the Lord's day, behind him heard an unexpected, overpowering, loud voice like a trumpet, which was none other than Jesus Christ, announcing that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. John turns and he sees the most glorious sight ever beheld by human eyes, none other than the glorified Christ. He says that he turns and does not see a, a grotesque picture of Christ marred and from the experience of the cross, torn and bleeding and almost unrelated to human form. But he says these words, one like, I saw one like the Son of Man. And this title refers not only to Christ's incarnation, but also to his messianic character. John sees the risen Messiah, the Savior of the world. John sees Christ as the glorified figure, blazing countenance, clothed in white, eyes like flames of fire, feet burning like brass, who inspects, reproves, and counsels the church. And in his hand, he holds the stars 
the leaders of the church. You know, John's reaction is only normal to all of this. Before all this glory, he says that he falls down as dead upon the ground. Yet I want you to notice something here. The hand of Jesus reaches out and touches John. And we hear the voice of Christ speaking very strong words of assurance, telling him not to be afraid. In like manner, Christ's hand reaches out to every believer and he speaks strong words of assurance to each one of us. Cover the next PowerPoint, please. John tells us that Jesus holds the church in his right hand. What a wonderful picture. And there's some qualities about this hand I want to draw your attention to. First, the hand of Christ is a creative hand. We only need to look around at the universe and, and see all of creation and see the hand of Christ. Paul tells us to Colossians of Christ's involvement in creation. He tells us all things were created by Christ for him and all things consist for him. There's a story told of a man one day who was working on a home project at his home and he was putting in a wooden deck so he could entertain friends when they came around and visited him. And in the process of putting down the deck, he picked up a plank and a large green splinter carved its way into his hand. He stopped and he pulled out the splinter and put some ointment on it and, and bound it up and thought, well, he'd go back to work and he would forget all about it. But he soon discovered something. The harder he worked with his hands, each time he picked up a tool, each time he picked up a plank, the wound in his hand was a constant reminder of his personal pain in putting the deck together. You know, Christ, the great creator of the universe, has a cut in the palm of his hand, a nail print that still bears in his resurrected body, the cut which shows that he's not distanced himself from us, but personally involved in creating the best in our lives. Just as that carpenter felt the pain every time he picked up a tool and remembered his personal involvement in creating the deck, so Jesus Christ never forgets his personal involvement in creating good in our lives. Secondly, the hand is a hand of remembrance. In Isaiah 49, God tells us that he's engraved us upon our hands. We only write the important things we do in life down on the palm of our hands. The young man that's getting married, very shortly your wife will send you down the shop and you'll have to write it on your palm of your hands. You'd never forget that. The trouble is when I get down to the shop there, she says to me, buy certain things and there's ten types of them. But anyway, because thank God for mobile phones. But the scripture tells us that God has engraved us upon the palm of his hands. Now, uh, the word engraved here actually means to tattoo and it refers to a permanent immovable mark and the passage is referring to a practice that ancient sailors had and probably today where they have a tattoo of a loved one upon them or the name of their loved one tattooed upon them. Now tattooists don't like to do a tattoo on your hand. There are several reasons for it. First off is that when you start it bleeds a lot. The next is that, that it's very, very painful and difficult to paint. And thirdly, it doesn't last because the skin on your hand is constantly changing and moving off and it becomes just a mess. The palms of a human may not be permanent, but God's engraving of us upon his palms are permanent. It won't fade away. It won't, fade away. It won't distort. The ink won't mesh together and become unreadable yeah. in a month. His hands are immortal, eternal. 
They don't age. We are God's loved ones tattooed upon his hands. We are never out of his mind. The third thing I want you to notice about the hand is a hand of protection. Isaiah tells us that the Lord our God holds us in his right hand. That's interesting. The grasp of a hand is an indication of a close and present friendship, of a living nearness of a deliverer. And the sense of God's presence is so near that our faith can touch his hand. It's a source of courage which no danger can dispel, no suffering exhaust, right, no suffering exhaust, no death can, can destroy. Along with the passage of God having us engraved upon the palm of his hand is a promise that God is always there in every situation, that he has every situation well in hand. And I noticed something about a hand when threatened, it can become a fist, a place of protection. Not only our times, but all our circumstances, the days of our lives, the happenings of our lives, all are under his control. There's a very old song we used to sing, and the song was that he's got the whole world in his hand. There's never a true word spoken. Jesus tells us himself that he has the whole church in his hand. What a wonderful and comforting thought. Amen. Can I have the final PowerPoint, please? You know, it's estimated that each year that six million people visit the Mona Lisa painted by Leonardo Vinci in the Louvre. I've seen it. It's magnificent. The average person spends only 15 seconds looking at it. It's estimated also that over 4 million people a year visit St. Peter's in the Sistine Chapel and look upon the great artworks by Leonardo and Raphael and many other paintings. Yet as great as these works of art are, they pale into insignificance with the awe-inspiring portrait of Christ described in these verses. The visitors to the Louvre and St. Peter's only have a few moments to encounter these great works of art. Well, we have a lifetime to read and to contemplate and to encounter the great portrait of Christ. But you know, there's a time coming when that encounter won't be interrupted, that we'll look upon his face for all eternity and be there. You know, as the hand of Christ reached out and touched John, so the hand of Christ reaches out today, touching our spirits, bringing a great assurance to our soul of his great love for each of us, reminding us that he is our great Alpha and Omega. He knows every one of our thoughts. He's not, uh, he has not abandoned the church. He is our great Pantacrector, the one who is all-powerful, the one who sustains all things and accomplishes all things. He is our great protector. Amen. The opening chapter of Revelation reminds us that Jesus Christ holds us in his right hand, that no matter the unfolding events of the end time, uh, Christ never forgets us. He never forgets his personal involvement in creating good in our lives and caring for us. Praise his name. And we can lift our voice with the Apostle John and say these words, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the opening chapter of the book of Revelation is a very important chapter 
because we have a great assurance that whatever takes place in the future, whatever we see and we don't understand, Jesus holds us. He's kept us close together. Bless the Lord. Let's go and hand back to you, Pastor.